While I was reading R.E.A. Lightstone's Let My People Know, I thought about an old diplomatic memoir entitled Witness to History. As senior advisor to the United States Ambassador to the State of Israel, Aryeh witnessed and contributed to several momentous historical events in the Middle East politics. Let My People Know is full of behind-the-scenes reports on the principles who accomplished the move of America's embassy to Jerusalem and the birth of the Abraham Accord. It took people of enormous courage and conviction and ability, starting with President Trump, who was elected and, and made the decisions. Ultimately, every one of these decisions was his at the end, uh, but he deserves the credit also for hiring the right people. Uh, between those people, uh, two of the most amazing foreign policy accomplishments of my lifetime were able to happen against the quote, desires and interests of the vast majority of the institution of the United States of America. You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Aryeh, congratulations on writing a fast-paced, insightful account of four consequential years that transformed for the good relations between the United States, Israel, and the Arab world. Aryeh, did you imagine when you took the job of special advisor, you would be part of several accomplished accomplishments the foreign policy experts never imagined could happen? First of all, thank you so much for both sharing of your time and your fantastic platform and podcast. Uh, it is lovely to be reconnected. Um, no, the answer is I, I couldn't have imagined that we would have accomplished nearly what was accomplished, um, mostly because you know we sort of grew up in a world of what's impossible and what cannot happen and why it cannot happen. And so few people, really so few people, uh, spoke about what will happen. And it took an unlikely president with enormous courage and conviction and a team that he hired, uh, including my direct boss, Ambassador David Friedman, and his son-in-law, senior advisor, Jared Kushner, and, and others, uh, who looked at the circumstances and said, not only can we do things differently, but we will do things differently. And even knowing that they were going to approach this from a unique and special perspective, I knew that we would be pro-Israel. I didn't know how successful that would ultimately become. So I was as surprised as everybody else as it was happening. I had countless pinch me moments to make sure that it was really happening. In the book, you uh, talk about the pushback that the team, the Trump team, um, encountered within the government when it came to both of these big issues 
uh, the movement of the embassy to Jerusalem and the Abraham Accords. When it came to the uh, movement of the embassy, there was a lot of talk and mashing of teeth over that the Arab street would erupt if this happened. Now that did not happen. Can you just give us a little inside look as to what the roadblocks were within our own government? Yeah, and, and you and your group actually know this extremely well, and I described this in my book, uh, that there is a system of circular thinking that's created an ecosystem that purely reinforces itself. So for example, Congress has a law that we at every embassy need to write these reports that go back to Congress and the White House and the State Department and the intelligence agencies. But what goes into those reports are what not-for-profit organizations report. And the embassy then takes their reports and files it away as though it's gospel. And then what winds up happening is those non-governmental organizations go back to their donors and say, look, we've helped craft U.S. policy, give us more money. They get more money. They write more reports that may or may not be factually accurate. And then they get filed into the next year's report. And suddenly you've got an entire unvirtuous circle of propaganda and myth uh, rather than reality. And so therefore, yeah, there certainly has been in the past a strong Arab Muslim pushback to meaningful steps regarding Jerusalem and specifically in Israel in general. But the fact that that existed in the 70s and was propagated in the 80s and maybe reinforced in the 90s doesn't mean that that's what the 2000s and beyond were. And there was no refreshing or resetting of US policy because once this avalanche goes, it almost becomes too large to turn around. And it took people of enormous courage and conviction and ability, starting with President Trump, who was elected and, and made the decisions. Ultimately, every one of these decisions was his at the end, uh, but he deserves the credit also for hiring the right people. Uh, David Friedman, uh, who knew him forever, and Jared Kushner, who obviously was incredibly close, both personally and professionally. And in between those two people, uh, two of the most amazing foreign policy accomplishments of my lifetime were able to happen against the, quote, desires and interests of the vast majority of the institution of the United States of America, government. You know, one of the amazing things politically in the United States is how popular among Republicans and many other people, President Trump continues to be. And I would chalk that up to a man who said he was going to do something and actually did it. When it came to moving the American embassy, uh, candidate Trump ran on a platform that he, unlike multiple presidents before him, would in fact follow through on legislation that was passed by Congress to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Can you comment on that? 
Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of President Trump's popularity in general, I think he says things that that people want to say, but sometimes are nervous to say so. I mean, we, we live in, in, in this, it's not just foreign policy, but there are lots of things that are just ludicrous. I'm saying women give birth to babies and men do not. And it seems to me that that's a controversial statement today. Certainly Trump wouldn't consider that a controversial statement. When, when, when President Trump, and this is David Friedman's story, certainly not Ari Leifel's story, and, 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 and it's Jared's uh, and Mike Pence's story, but what I heard from having sat in the room when they came back from these meetings was, why hasn't this decision been made? I mean, multiple presidents promised to do this. Every president prior to President Trump from 1995 on promised and did not keep their promise. And once it came down to why haven't we done this, I mean, we, the United States of America, it turns out that we were allowing other interests to dictate our foreign policy, be that neighbors of Israel, be that uh, individual politicians in the United States of America. And, and, and when the president looked at this and said, wait, this is in the U.S. interest to get this done, uh, he got it done. And uh, and again, it's not as simple as that. And I would encourage everybody to get David Friedman's book, Sledgehammer, and Jared Kushner's book is going to be out shortly as well. Uh, they were in the room for those conversations. I was in the room for what the implementation was going to look like, for the opening of the embassy, for what it was like on December 6, 2017, when President Trump recognized Jerusalem on December Seventh, the very next day, I was the first U.S. diplomat in history to welcome somebody to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And that somebody was then Governor Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, now Senator Rick Scott, a senator from Florida. And, and what that was like at that moment, and, and the truth of it was, is it felt natural. It was unnatural for us to pretend that Jerusalem was not the capital of Israel. And it became sort of the, the ultimate settling point for the United States to do the correct thing, which was the recognition of Jerusalem. You know, Aryeh mentioned two books, one that's been published by David Friedman, another one that's coming out. But I actually um, would like to recommend that readers start with Let My People Know. Um, it is a very candid look at not only what took place, but why it took place. At one point in the book, you talk about how this basically these foreign policy accomplishments could not have occurred if the professional foreign policy folks and diplomats were in the room. The people who put this together, the chief folks, and I would, uh, uh, there, there's a handful, you included, um, are in fact not professional diplomats. Can you explain why it is that such monumental uh, accomplishments occurred without? the expertise of the diplomatic core? So first of all, great, great question, Alan. I'm gonna do something I don't think you're anticipating. I'm gonna quote Richie Torres, uh, the congressman from, uh, from New York, the very progressive congressman from mm -hmm. New York. 
he was asked why he's pro-Israel, and his response was he didn't go to college. Uh, <laughs> Right. He, he, he just he wasn't taught to be not pro-Israel. And, and that's the difference in between the, quote, unexperienced people. Look, every one of your listeners has had it up to here and you can't see my hands, but it's up way past my eyeballs with so-called experts being asked for their expert opinion time and time again. And when those expert opinions are incorrect, there are no ramifications. They're back on a cable show the next day. They're back in positions of expert opinions the next day. Uh, what, what is that called? I mean, we, we should just remove the word expert, at least translate or change the, the, the understanding of what the word, because it, it's lost all meaning. And the same thing goes in foreign policy. Expert means that everybody else I talk to agrees with me. And therefore, in my echo chamber, I must be right because I've never met anybody else that I respect who disagrees with me. And these outsiders, led by President Trump, I mean, we've never had him, we've never. Uh, in, in recent decades, we have not had a more outsider president than him who brought in outsider professional business people who are used to uh, business where you win or you lose and you keep track based upon dollars and cents or businesses bought or businesses lost. And he brought in these professionals who looked at a problem set and said, let's solve it instead of perpetuate it. And, and again, the President Trump does not get enough credit. He was the one who was elected. And had these things gone poorly, he would have gotten all the blowback. As it is, when they went well, he didn't get any of the credit. So, <laughs> you know, it, it darned if you do, darned if you don't in his particular case. But, but you know, he went to the well each and every time because it was the right thing to do for America. When when he says he gets up to 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 you know work for work for America on these foreign policy decisions, these weren't pro-Israel policy decisions. These were pro-America policy decisions. That's an extremely important point to make. Numerous presidents um, attempted said that they were going to solve the Middle Eastern conflicts. President Trump actually succeeded. And uh, you report in your book about President Trump's first foreign policy trip where, uh, as president, where he went to Saudi Arabia. And I remember that trip vividly. And I remember being astounded when sitting before the Sunni Arab, the leaders of the Sunni Arab world, he lectured them on that they must put a stop to, control, and the terrorism that was being fed by the Wahhabi um, ideology. And, uh, and in many respects, I think he, um, he set the stage for what came forward and eventually came to be known as the Abraham Accords. Do you agree with that? Alan, I had not heard that before and you hit the nail on the head. And let, let me, let me clar clarify, let me put a sharper point on that with your permission. Um, 
contrast President Biden's trip to the region just recently and President Trump's trip to the region. President Trump ran on what the media called was a Muslim ban, right? His first international trip, he shows up in Saudi Arabia to meet with the leaders of the Muslim and Arab world, right? Again, it was on the Muslim ban. And, and he sat there and he said that radical Islam hurts America, but my goodness, does it hurt Islam far more. And if you don't deal with it, we will deal with it. It's your job to deal with it. And, and those countries took up the mantle of, oh my gosh, the, the superpower of the world is calling us out. Do we want to be known as the people who fly planes into buildings, or do we want to be known as the people who build buildings? There's an enormous amount of pride in Islam where they don't want to be known as the people who are the villains in every movie. They don't want to be known as the terrorists throughout the world. They want to be known for, for you know, a monotheistic religion that has values that so many of us can understand. Now, this is, this is hard for us to wrap our mind around because since 9-11, that has not been part of American culture. And, and those of us who followed Israel specifically much closer, the concept of Islamic terrorism is one that, that many of us sort of grew up with. Um, since, and really prior to, to President Trump's visit, but President Trump, who came and, and said this directly, he was met with respect. And, and not only was he met with respect, you've seen enormous changes from countries in terms of looking the other way in terms of terror financing. You've seen enormous changes in terms of countries doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on religious tolerance, on, on it's not even acceptance, it's, it's on promotion of diversity, words that you never thought I would be saying when I'm talking about the Middle East. And, and this is the president who, quote, ran on the Muslim ban. I mean, it's, it's astonishing to think. And, and if, you're, if your listeners want to see something fantastic, go look at the difference in between the reception that President Trump got in Saudi versus the reception that President Biden got in Saudi. If you, if you remember at the conclusion of President Trump's visit, there was the orb dance. And that was like the greatest fiasco in the history of public diplomacy, according to the, to, to the media. That, that he was greeted with the royal dance by all the Arab and Muslim leaders, right? And this was, this was, this was a disaster, as opposed to when President Biden showed up and said, can you please pump more energy? Uh, and and the, the Arab leaders are looking and saying, I think we would pump more energy, but why would we? You have more energy than we do at home and you're not pumping. They, they recognize hypocrisy. They recognize deeds far more than they recognize words. And, and, and I think you're exactly correct from President Trump showing up and saying, radical Islam is your problem, not our problem, you deal with it. Two, and I described this in the book as well, his first direct flight, which was the first ever direct public flight from Saudi to Israel, he said, I'm not stopping. And, and that action was a, was a very public way of saying, I see the world differently. In addition to uh, giving us insights both in Washington, D.C. and in Israel as to how policy developed, how various players participated, um, you are very complimentary to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. You um, and uh, several 
uh, of the visitors that came your way, which you were involved in shepherding around parts of Jerusalem. But there's one story that I'd like you to recount. Um, one of your operational philosophies was that you were no longer going to uphold this wacko idea of moral equivalency. And yeah. when there were terrorists, victims of terrorism in Israel, Ambassador Friedman and yourself would go visit the families. And you recount a very touching story where Ambassador Friedman could not go to the home of a family of, with 13 children whose father was the victim of a terrorist attack. And your experience in visiting this family, can you just recount that story for us? Yeah, no, it's, uh, it, you know, when, when Ambassador Friedman first arrived, uh, it, he made it his policy that he would go on behalf of the United States of America and to console any family that lost somebody to terror, uh, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, irrelevant. And, and he would stand strong against sort of the de facto statement that all Western nations said urgent calm on both sides, as though being Jewish in the biblical homeland of Israel, regardless of which side of the green line they're on, is cause enough to, to create the anger that somebody needs to attempt to or succeed in murdering somebody. I mean, this is, these are the comments. We, we, we urge restraint on all sides. I, I, again, there have been cases of religious Jewish or, 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 or right-wing zealotry Jewish terrorism, it is extremely few, extremely far between, and it is condemned by every sector of Israeli society instantaneously. Contrast that with uh, radical Islamic terrorism, which not only is not condemned, it's actually incentivized based upon these martyr payments, which I'm sure most of your listeners know about. And if you haven't, there are great op-eds uh, even recently about this regarding the Taylor Force Act. And, and it was a given that in every administration, amplified during the Obama administration, when unfortunately there were terror attacks, the statement would inevitably come from the U.S. Ambassador Dan Shapiro and the U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, uh, we express sympathies for the family of the victim of terror, and we encourage, uh, you know, the freezing of building as so not to incense, as to not to, uh, to escalate tensions, uh, which is which is the height of stupidity um, and 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 moral equivalence in between Jews having the right to live in a place versus the bigotry of low expectations that Palestinians obviously have no other recourse other than terrorism, which is horrendous for the Jews, but far worse in terms of the perception of Palestinians. That, that's ridiculous. And, and who would think so lowly of somebody like that? So anyway, so one of the things that Ambassador David Friedman did is we, we went to go visit. And, and if he was traveling or whatever else it would be, uh, I, was, I, I would go. 
and I was always much more happy to go with him because he was the ambassador and much more recognized. And also, he has such a comforting presence uh, there. But there were there were at least ten times, unfortunately, that I had to go on my own to go uh, visit people seriously injured or or comfort those who had lost people and and this particular one we went to the town of Ailey and uh, we went into the house and my security was nervous it was just me in the house with the family and and the mother uh, and 13 kids or 12 kids who were mourning the loss of their father and and the mother's mother and the grandmother who had lost not one but two sons-in-law to terror and I I, I you know, we walk into the house, and I'm just picturing it now. I walk in with the American flag on my lapel and realize it's not R.E. Lightstone going to provide condolences. It's, it's R.E. Lightstone's senior advisor to the ambassador on behalf of President Trump and Vice President Pence and the entire American people that we stand with you. And that's the line that I say because there's nothing else to say at that point in time. And after I said that, I mean, the whole room burst into tears. And the, the grandmother who had lost another son-in-law, as I, as I just said, uh, said, in the past, we felt alone and we felt isolated, uh, that it was only other Jews that looked like us that came, or some Israeli politicians who used the death as a political point. But you, America, the most powerful country in the history of the world, come and sit with us at this moment of our greatest sorrow, and we feel as though the life of my son-in-law had greater meaning, and that we're not alone, and that when you walk into the room, it's not you, but it's 300 million Americans, and it's not just Americans, it's the light on the world, it's the most powerful, meaningful force for good in terms of a country in the history of the world. And and, and that line will always stay with me, uh, because what did I do? I got into a car and, and I, you know, gave a emotional hug, uh, but they felt comforted because I had an American flag on the lapel. It wasn't me, uh, but it was a flag. And, and when you look at what that flag represents, I, I can't help but get choked up. It is a very powerful story, and um, it is also indicative of your book in that you give us insights to things that are taking place on the ground that are pertinent that, frankly, the news media does not cover. One of the things um, that president after president, administration after administration have run up against is the intransigence of the Palestinians to negotiate a settlement with the state of Israel. And you recount in your book of one instance, which I think uh, really is enlightening as to the mindset of the Palestinians. It's about a plane load of COVID-19 uh, vaccines, which uh, came from Israel and needed permission to go to the Palestinian world and deliver the vaccines. But because the plane was coming from Israel, uh, the Palestinians refused the vaccines. Can you just recount that story? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it was prior to the vaccines, it was June or May of, uh, of I think it was probably June of, uh, of 2020, where the fight then was for respirators and, uh, and ventilators and, uh, and some of these uh, medicines that they felt could be potentially helpful after somebody had contracted COVID. And, uh, and, and the Emiratis, 
the United Arab Emirates had sent a plane load of relief. Pe- people who don't track this carefully, which most Americans don't, uh, the Emiratis are extremely generous uh, in terms of aid to other Arab and Muslim countries, and, and, and frankly, a lot of non-Arab and Muslim countries as well. And they felt that they had their circumstances under control in the UAE, and now they were in a position to give to others. And they sent their national carrier, Etihad, to uh, Israel in order to give aid to the Palestinian Authority, and it landed at Ben-Gurion Airport because the border crossing in between Jordan and Israel was closed. So had it landed in Amman like it normally would have in non-COVID times, uh, it would have landed in Amman and got on a truck and it would have driven into, into Bethlehem or into Ramallah or Janine. Uh, but because the border was closed because of COVID, uh, it landed in Ben-Gurion and Israel was happy to put it on trucks and to send it to the Palestinian Authority. And the Palestinian Authority refused because they saw a brother of theirs, the United Arab Emirates, landing their plane on the treacherous Israel, which means, uh, you know, unlike John Kerry, no, 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 we won't negotiate, we won't recognize, et cetera. And, and oh my goodness, Etihad Airlines has landed in Ben-Gurion Airport. Maybe Israel is not a temporary aberration through history. Maybe it's real. And, and the absurdity of all of that, when the world, I, I'm sure your, your listeners remember May and June of 2020, when there was legitimate concern that somebody would be in the hospital and not have access to a respirator or to a ventilator. And if that was a concern in America, imagine what that was like in a place like the Palestinian Authority or in Jordan, et cetera. And the Emirates uh, decided to donate generously. And the Palestinians, who are the moderate, peace-loving Palestinian Authority that were told are legitimate partners for peace, uh, rejected it because the airplane landed in Ben-Gurion Airport. that was just ridiculous on, on every count. It showed complete and total lack of self-awareness. And, uh, and beyond the complete and total lack of self-awareness, it demonstrated a, a, a arrogance that, uh, that if, if COVID taught any of us anything, hopefully it taught all of us a lot, some degree of humility. And, and that was just non-existent. And I think the world took notice. Certainly the Arab world took notice. You have... Um you you deal with the Palestinians um, or your attempts to deal with the Palestinians came up against the brick wall in terms of getting a long-term peace. So the Trump administration moves in another direction and they throw out the old playbook of the only solution to the conflict in the Middle East is creating two states, uh, an Israeli state and a Palestinian state. And you start dealing with the Arab countries um, uh, who are not directly related to the Palestinians. Um, The negotiations that take place, um, a lot of that information is in your book. Uh, but uh, can you uh, share with us uh, how, in fact, you got to the point where Arab countries that have been at war with Israel since the creation of the modern state of Israel in 1948 
Uh, several of them and more are occurring pretty regularly, uh, establish full diplomatic relations because of the Trump administration uh, pushing in another direction in terms of making peace between the Arab world and Israel. Can you give us a bird's eye view of the uh, the birth of the Abraham Accords and what fruit they have borne? Yeah, uh, I mean, the, 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 the two-word answer is Jared Kushner. Uh, Four-word answer would be Jared Kushner and Avi Berkowitz. Uh, when they began the mantle of trying to solve the Middle East, they did not start with the Palestinians. They went to listen. But I think the conversations and the maturity of the conversations were enormously different when they met with the leaders of some of the Gulf countries and then met with the leaders of the Palestinian Authority, et cetera. Now they developed relationships that, that I think were different than previous administrations because they walked in uh, unexperienced and they walked in and they listened. And because they were unencumbered by previous conversations, I think they were able to look at the world with fresh eyes. And as they looked at the world with fresh eyes, they said, okay, well, here's the conflict point. Here's the point of disagreement. Here's what can be overcome. Here's what cannot be overcome. And if the following eight or nine steps take place, we can probably get somewhere. And if we can't do those eight or nine steps, we probably won't get somewhere. And, and they really took Jared and Avi, uh, Ambassador Friedman, uh, and a few others, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, um, you know, took these steps and said, look, what, what steps can we do that are in America's interest? Because look, everything is a cost-benefit analysis. How much time is going to be spent? How much effort is going to be spent? How much uh, leverage is going to be spent in order to accomplish these things? And, and if that time, leverage, and effort is spent, what, what is the reward for that at the end? And, and because I think specifically Jared and, and, and David uh, come from business backgrounds, I, you know, they looked and said, this is a problem set. How do we, how do we solve that? And, and frankly, if you look at the Middle East today over the last five years, the vast majority of the leadership, certainly of the Abraham Accord countries, um, want to be competitive in the region with jobs and technology and not with weapons and laws. I mean, they want to be very powerful um, attraction states where people want to come and work, where people want to come and live, not where you need borders to keep people in, uh, but you have borders to keep people out because there's such a rush to be able to get into your country. And in order to be competitive there, uh, these countries looked and said, okay, well, look, what can we contribute to the U.S.? What can the U.S. contribute to us? And, and once the conversations came in a classic cost-benefit analysis, then it, it was simply a question of how do you move the chess pieces to get to the point where this happens? And, and the culmination of that was August 13, 2020, which I write about in the book, Let My People Know. I was lucky enough to be invited into the Oval Office to hear the conversation between President Trump, Prime Minister Netanyahu, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, where Mohammed bin Zayed, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed says, we are going to make a better future regardless of the past that we were handed. And that was a decision that these leaders made and, and they made it, they knew there was a cost, but they knew there was a benefit and it was the job of the United States and, and here again, Jared Avi Trump to create a benefit that was large enough 
to make it worth the cost or the risk that, uh, that the Emiratis were going to take. And that risk became less once the Bahrainis took it. It became less once the Moroccans took it because that's what actually happened. Uh, I want to uh, end this podcast with um, reiterating something that I said at the beginning. This is a fast-paced, informative book about monumental changes that took place uh, in the Middle East and, frankly, the world for the benefit of the United States of America as well as Israel and various countries in the Middle East. The book is called Let My People Know. And the subtitle is The Incredible Story of Middle East Peace and What Lies Ahead. Aryeh, I want to thank you for the service that you uh, did on behalf of the United States and the accomplishments, the two biggest um, being the move of the American embassy to Jerusalem and the Abraham Accords. And of course, another thing I must thank you for is for taking the time out and speaking with us. Uh, first of all, thank you. Uh, it, it's, I, I know your audience well, and, and what an honor to be able to interact with them. You and I go way back contract with you and and the reason why the book is called let my people know is because under any other administration at any other time uh this would be the most publicly heralded accomplishment in foreign policy in our lifetime i was able to see it happen in real time and i just want people to see it without the politics and without the personality but the policy it, it changes the middle east and it's going to change the world, and, and people need to know about that. So I, I appreciate you giving me the time and the platform. I extend an invitation for you to come back anytime you'd like to come back to be a guest and share your knowledge with us. And once again, uh, Encounter Books, uh, let my people know. I highly recommend it. And. Uh, on to future successes. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.